There's this phrase, Bitcoin fixes this. I'm of the opinion that Bitcoin fixes everything. Hello there. How are you all? Are any of you out here in Miami yet? Are you out here for the conference? I'm here with my whole team, apart from Ben. Ben sadly couldn't join us, but we've got Austin here. First time hanging out with him. New boy Connor on his first trip. We've also got Emma and Danny here. We've been making loads of amazing shows, and I've got an absolute banger for you today. But firstly, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Yes, a massive show today. I've got Sailor back. And do you know what? It's not the show we planned. We were sitting talking about this, thinking about how could we do something different with Sailor. And do you know what? It was a monster. I asked him to give a little bit of a life pep talk to my son, and we ended up sitting for about half an hour with him giving some amazing advice. And then Connor sat in the show for the first half. But we also covered AI and Bitcoin miners and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's a brilliant show. Absolutely loved it. And just a big shout out and thanks to Michael for doing this, for this amazing advice. Do you know what? Not just for Connor, but actually for all of us. Now, we have got our live show tonight. So if you're in Miami and you want to head down to Gramps, we've got Lynn Alden, Jeff Snyder, we've got Harry Sadek and Troy Cross. We're doing a live WBD event. You can still get tickets on the website. Just head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Apart from that, I hope you enjoy the show. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, Michael, this is uh, it's my son, Connor. Great uh, to meet you, Connor. Cheers. You too. Uh, we've told him a lot about you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. So he quit uni how long ago? About a month ago. And I'm conscious when we make this podcast and you do interviews, you do a lot. We're most of the time, if not all the time, talking to our peers or people of a similar age. But there's a whole generation like Connor who some of them have gone to uni and realized it's not for them. Some of them are learning things right now. I even think of my daughter, which are going to be... Uh, unrequired with AI in the future. And so I think there's this whole different crowd that we can talk to. But I just think for someone like Connor, you, like, you, look, we know you've been successful. You've had a hugely successful career. It'd be good to hear some of the most important lessons that you've learned that maybe you could share with Connor. And Connor might have some questions back. Well, cool. <laughs> well, first of all, you're lucky. You get to start life fresh <laughs> with... Uh none of the baggage of the rest of us and and uh, the opportunities in the 21st century are extraordinary um i was uh i was at a a social gathering uh a number of years ago and uh, a multi-billionaire walked up to me and and he said i've got uh, i've got twins a boy and a girl and on their 21st birthday i want to give them a book of advice that I gathered from all of my friends. So if you could, I want you to write down your advice to my 21 year olds on, on the occasion of their maturity. And uh, I said, really? I said, yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it together with you know everybody else I know. And so I said, okay, I guess I can do that. And I thought that was one of those things where he was going to wait a few months and I would send it by email. But he takes out a little red book. He puts it in my hand with a pen. He says, okay, write them down now. Like it's a big party, it's a cocktail party. Those people are going, you know, around, and it's a spectacular villa looking over the Mediterranean. And I didn't really think I would be asked this question, you know, give me advice for two, you know, young adults. But I thought, okay, think, 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 think. So I sit down and I wrote down ten things, and I handed it back to him. So I'm going to start by giving you those ten suggestions, and then I'm going to give you uh, some practical suggestions that I would give to anybody um, that go beyond the theory. Okay, so the theory. Uh, one, 
focus your energy. You think you can do everything. You can't. And everybody overestimates all the things they can do. The things I regret in my life are all the good ideas I pursued to the detriment of my great idea. You know, you're going to have 27 good ideas and they're going to be, and, and Peter interviews people with good ideas all the time. And then you ask the question, well, do we have the energy to make it work? So you got to focus. Connor, uh, every time I do an interview with Michael, it ends with him telling me this again as well. Focus. And that's, you go to my Twitter profile. I got laser eyes. The message of laser eyes is focus. I'm, I'm not against a thousand things. I am not in favor of a hundred things. I am simply trying to advocate for one thing. And the, the one thing is Bitcoin. So focus your energy. Uh, second, guard your time. Everybody's going to actually want to take your time. There's going to be a million things you do with your time. And, and, you know, when I was growing up, we had like three channels and we had like every night programming that was original from eight to 11. And, you know, there was no porn. Like there was one Playboy magazine I saw in the woods once in my entire childhood. Why is it always in the woods? Do you remember that? It's always in the <laughs> no, woods. It. it was sitting in some like wrecked car, you know, and it was, you know, it was legendary. All the teenage boys would talk <laughs> about the one Playboy magazine, you know? Uh, and so today you've got Twitch and you've got YouTube and you've got infinite porn and you've got infinite games and you've got infinite, you've got infinite everything. And if you look at the scourge of modernity, it's every possible thing people ever thought they might want. We figured out how to manufacture it in bulk pharmaceutical grade and drive the variable cost to zero. So uh, infinite music used to be music cost money. Infinite books used to be books. You know, I went to the library. I checked out books. I had to take them back. There was a limit on the books. So no limits today. And you really have to have to ask yourself the question, how are you going to spend your time? Because you could literally spend the next 30 years of your life watching chess videos on YouTube, not playing chess, just watching the videos of other people playing chess, right? There's infinite hundreds of thousands of hours of chess videos to be watched. So the third, the third piece of advice is train your mind, train it, right? Uh, you know, train what math, learn math, learn to speak, learn a language, uh, learn logic, especially logic and language and, and basic thinking skills. Uh, how you do that, right? Doesn't necessarily mean you need to go to university, right? Uh, I launched the Sailor Academy and we've given education to one and a half million students. We don't charge them a, a nickel. It's, it's absolutely free. In my opinion, you can probably train your mind better, faster, not in a school today, right? But because the options I had when I was going through school, like when I was in high school, I could learn Spanish or French or Latin, but that's all I could learn. And I could learn two years of it and I could learn at the same rate as everybody else. And I could learn one semester of calculus or and half a semester of calculus. That's all I can learn. So train your mind, use technology to do it. Uh, the fourth, train your body, be healthy. Uh, you don't have to do things that are inflammatory and dangerous. I mean, I'm not telling you to go be a, a, a boxer or, or take excessive risk, but I think any kind of healthy training, the pattern you get into your entire life is important. It won't be that important in the first, like right now in your 20s or your 30s, you can get away with really, really bad behavior. There will be a greater price to pay in your 40s. It will get 
exponentially worse in your 50s. If you engage in really b- bad behavior and you don't train your body by the time you get to your 60s, sometimes the, you know, the journey's over. And when you get to your 70s, you'd like to be able to walk around and uh, being able to walk around or into your 80s or the, or the like is a function of, your, of the way you uh, treat your health. So, you know, if your body goes, your mind will go later and life is just not that fun. Uh, fifth, think for yourself. Everybody's going to tell you what to think. Everybody, you know, every media organization is in the business of telling you what to think. Uh, and generally, they all have an agenda. Uh, when At some point in your life, you'll read a story and you'll ask the question, what was the agenda of the journalist that wrote the story? And what was the agenda of the media organization that published the journalist? And what was the agenda in the nation where the journalist lives? And if you if you start to think about all those things, then you'll realize that oftentimes in life, if you, especially if you run a business, like I want to do something, I want maybe I want to buy a product I never bought the product before, and Peter sells a version of the product, and Danny sells a version of the product, and you sell a version of the product, and you all three of you are experts. I know nothing. What I what I do is I try to buy from each of you, and then I triangulate between each of you. And you can tell me lies. You can tell me lies. You can tell me lies. I wouldn't know the difference, but at some point you will rat out him. You will rat out. He will rat out you. You will rat out him. I will create a mosaic of it, and I will figure out what the truth is by inferring it from a bunch of uh, distorted information. So assume everything's distorted, and it's your job to synthesize and get to your version of the truth. Um, Six, uh, curate your friends. You know, be careful the company you keep, right? Some people will make you better and, and they'll lift you up and other people will drag you down. And plenty of people's lives are ruined by a bad friendship in their teens, right? <laughs> your friend wants, you know, I'm not going to go into details. You figure it out. Choose your friends carefully. Choose their values. And, and you have infinite choice. There's, there's 8 billion people on the planet, right? <laughs> You can find three friends that, that that will work well with you, and so figure out figure out the right ones and run from the right, wrong ones. You know, cherish the right ones. Seventh, curate your environment. Like, look where we are right now. Right, there's good light in this room. Didn't have to be good light in this room. Peter could have picked one that has awful light. Right, pick the environment that's happy, that's healthy. Curating the environment means choose where you will live, what city, what neighborhood, how you will live. You know, do you want to live in a house with green grass? Do you want to live in an apartment? Think hard about that. You have a, you have more choice than you think you have. It will impact your mental health. It'll impact your your, your physical health. For example. Uh, you study statistics, you find that the likelihood of you getting mugged or murdered is highly correlated to your pedestrian pattern. So if you actually walk down 10 blocks in a bad neighborhood and you walk back and forth every day to work in the wrong place, you're like a thousand times more likely to get killed, mugged, murdered, whatever, right? So you made that choice. You might not realize you made that choice, but where you are and, um, and how you live makes a difference to your mental and your physical health. Um, eight, uh, keep your promises. 
whatever they are. The one thing people remember about you for the, for the rest of your life, if you promise them something 27 years later, they will still remember if you lied to them or if you promised them something and you didn't do it. And the problem with that is that that credibility over time compounds. And, and if you don't have credibility, people aren't going to want to help you. They're not going to help you. In fact, they're going to actually celebrate your failure. So don't make promises you can't keep, but bend heaven and earth to keep the promises you do make. And that, you know, obviously in business, it's the difference between businesses succeeding and failing. And like when you get in the public markets, my stock trades every day from 9.30 to 4.00. If people felt like I was going to do something different than what I told them, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of capital would disappear in a heartbeat when people feel it, when you lose credibility. So your ability to accomplish something in life is based on your credibility. So, so don't make promises you can't keep and keep your promises. Uh, nine, uh, stay cheerful, be constructive, right? Uh, the world's full of 10,000 things that are ugly and awful. But, uh, and, and you, can, you, you can talk about them ad infinitum, but if you sit with someone, you know, for three hours and you talk about how awful the world is or, or how much you don't like it, at some point, if you watch them, I do this with my employees, okay? I've, this, I've lived this life, okay? I, so I've sat with employees and I'm in a bad mood. I'm like, this isn't working. This isn't working. This is not working. This is not right. We could have done this better. We could have done this better. We could, could have done this better. And this is what happens to the person on the other side of the table. You start here. They're like, hey, what are we going to do today? And they're like, and then pretty soon they're like beat down, exhausted. You know, and then you end with that parade of horribles. You're like, so we can do this, and they're, but you've already beat them to death, right? And so, so you need to, they need to enjoy uh, and, and look forward to their engagement with you. If you, uh, if you want to accomplish something, find a way to do it in a cheerful, constructive way. Um, cheerful, you know, things that go viral on Twitter more often. Uh, they're like constructive, cheerful things. You know, if you're entertaining or you find, if I post a criticism, then some people see it, but it doesn't go that far. When I post a solution, like here's, here's a free thing. Here's a free course. Here is a free resource. You can have this for free. This is, this is a tool you can use. If, you know, like, for example, the other day I post, I saw a really nice video on what is Bitcoin and it had been posted by uh, a Bitcoin advocate and it had like 800 views because she didn't have that many followers. I thought, but this is kind of sad. This is sitting and languishing. It was like three and a half minutes of why Bitcoin is good. So I retweeted it. And, uh, you know, I said, no, there will only be 21 million Bitcoin or there'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoin or something like that. I went to like 200,000, 250,000 views. But what happened was all the other people on Twitter said, hey, this is a really good orange pilling video. And they started retweeting it. And you can see on Twitter now how people bookmark things. You can count the bookmarks. And it had the number one set of book, like thousands of bookmarks. Like people were bookmarking. Like you could see in their mind, they're like, I should save this because I might need to send this to my father, my mother, my friend. 
It's like I post something kind of snarky or, 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 or critical or pessimistic. No one's bookmarking that, <laughs> you know? And so cheerful and constructive works better. Also, you want people to look forward to seeing you, whether it's in a working environment, like I enjoy working with you, or if they're a customer, or if they're a supplier, or if they're just a friend. And then, I mean, number 10, uh, upgrade the world. There's a lot of ways to do it. Figure out how you're going to upgrade the world. Have, you know, have a, a way. So that, that's my theoretical advice uh, for someone entering their adulthood. Um, practical advice. Um, stuff that uh, I think is useful. Uh, I wish I'd studied even more history, like especially surveying a lot of history. By the way, history, his story, it's just a story, right? Alexander the Great took Herodotus with him on his campaigns. That's why Alexander is the great, because he hired a historian to write the book about him, okay? <laughs> there's 10,000 stories, okay? And if you read all the stories, there's the story from the point of view of, of a thousand different Indian tribes, from the point of view of the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Europeans, the French, the Spaniards, the Americans. Everybody's got the story, the Romans, the Gauls. The Russians, the Japanese, Chinese, they've all got the story from their point of view and they're the hero. And the other, the other tribe is the villain, the barbarian, the whatever. So if you, if you read history, enough of it, then you'll be empathetic and you'll be better able to interpret what's going on now. For, for example, like all these things, Taxes, you know, you know, there were ta there were monopolies on who could bake in New York City in the 1600s. <laughs> there was there was a monopoly on who could make a hat. You had to have a seven year apprenticeship before you could make a hat. They're all you know who wanted them. The hat makers in London wanted them. There are monopolies on who could trade with what. We had tobacco notes as money, and then there was a massive fight because someone wanted to cap the price of the tobacco money and the ministers getting paid in tobacco had a fit and appeal to the crown. When you read history, all these things, then you realize everything you're seeing today, it's not new. And when someone says we, had, we have to do this because this is unique, it's not unique, right? You won't be so easily manipulated. So history is good. Uh, in math, a lot of things I studied in math aren't useful. Calculus, calculus of variations, differential equations, uh, complex things like that. The only way in which those are useful, it's useful, it's useful that I studied vector math or linear math because I could think about vectors and I could think n-dimensionally. So the idea of n-dimensional math, the idea of nonlinear math, some of these things are useful to study, but the actual technique unnecessary because the computer and now the AIs will do it for you in a split second. But I tell you the kind of math that I use every day, every hour of the day. And if you don't have this, you will never be successful in business and you probably won't be successful in politics or life. And that is applied statistics. And by applied statistics, I mean... Can you just explain that? Quick? I mean... Understanding how significant it is, the thing someone's telling you. For example, the problem in this country is people slipping and falling in bathtubs. And therefore, we need a tax to rebuild everybody's bathtub. Being able to figure out how many people actually slip and fall in bathtubs or, and comparing it to shark attacks and comparing it to death by 
you know, drinking too much alcohol or a heart attack or, or the likelihood of you dying in a car crash or crossing the street. Or the example I gave you, which is statistically, you're a lot more likely to get mugged if you walk. By the way, you can correlate it to the number of minutes you spend on the street in a bad neighborhood, right? So if you understand, if you, once you think about statistics, statistics is essential to do business because you have to pick for example, what's the statistical likelihood that BlockFi, Celsius, and FTX are going to fail each year? Like, that's counterparty risk. If, the, if you thought they were going to fail once in 100 years, that's a 1% risk a year, and you have to put a 1% premium on top. It turned out they were basically likely to fail within 36 months, so the risk premium was 36%. And if they were paying you an interest rate less than 40% on your money, you're statistically losing all your money. So understanding statistics and, and being able to apply it to business, to life, uh, to, uh, to your social life, that's kind of useful. Um, it's useful in, in, in purchasing. It's useful in governance if you're ever a politician. Um, what's the, if I actually shut down the entire economy of the state because I think there's a hurricane that's going to hit Miami? Okay, what's the statistical, statistical likelihood it hits Miami? What's the, what's the amount of damage it does when it hits Miami? What happens if it doesn't hit Miami? What's the cost of the shutdown of the state? Okay, that's something you kind of have to make a decision on when you decide where you're going to live. And if you're, ever, if you're ever lucky enough to be a, a leader, you need to know that. And uh, generally, uh, you know, you know, when you do study statistics, you start to learn that most human interventions are iatrogenic. Iatrogenic being a long, complicated word for does more harm than good. When, when the cure is worse than the disease. Most, most things are iatrogenic. So if the, odds, if the odds of you actually having a disease are one in a million, and the medicine is 99% effective, that means that 1% of a million people that take the medicine, right? And in, in this particular case, it's a 1%, uh, 100,000, 10,000. So you got 10,000 people that take the medicine. One of them is going to die of the disease. So that means that in that case, 99.99% of the people that take the medicine are going to be sick from taking the medicine and they're not going to be helped, right? But to figure that out, right, you have to understand, you have to ask some basic statistical questions, right? How likely is, is it, you know, that, that that thing that you fear is going to kill me or hurt me versus how much damage will your prescribed cure do to me? And we all had a lot of examples of that lately. Uh, so statistics, I think, is really valuable, and I, I guess um, my, I'll, I'll end with just uh, practical suggestions on, on how to be successful. Um, in every generation, there's a tool, um, a platform, a new thing, a new technology, and when that technology hits, if you take advantage of it in the first five years, you'll probably be immortalized. For example, Led Zeppelin 
and the Beatles, you know, if you look at all classic rock from 1969 to 1975, and, and you made a list of all the truly insanely great stuff done, and then you see an exponential decay in unique rock and roll music from that point forward, it gets exponentially harder. Um, the piano, the work by Chopin, Beethoven, Mozart, extraordinary, it gets exponentially harder to make a unique piano contribution. If you look at the mainframe, then the mini computer, then the PC, then the internet, you kind of want to, when you're coming of age, you ask the question, what's the new thing? What, what is the extraordinary thing now? If, if uh, Michelangelo lived today, he wouldn't do what he did then. Just like if Beethoven lived today, you'd probably be seeing some exquisite dynamic metaversal, you know, construct created. So there is human genius in every generation and you have some talent, but the issue is what do you harness? Is it Instagram? That's the old thing. Was it Snapchat? Was it, you know, TikTok? Or in, in the current time period, this explosion of, of AI, you know, AI mid-journey and, and uh, chatbots and the like. I went to school at MIT and the previous generation, the generation of engineers that put the, the man on the moon, they designed spaceships with slide rules. I used an HP 15C calculator. A decade later, they had spreadsheets on laptops. And I just think, man, I could have been 100x as effective if I had a spreadsheet <laughs> on a laptop. You know, and then they had the internet, you know, and, and, and today, you know, you could say, give me a Shakespearean sonnet, you know, in the style <laughs> of whatever about roses and Bitcoin and, you know, it's like, well, maybe four years of English literature studies down the drain because, you know, it turns out in some ways, the person that has no talent, like you know, yesterday um, was Mother's Day. I wanted to post a picture for Mother's Day. I went and I, you know, first I went to Google. I Googled Bitcoin, Mother's Day, memes, nothing. Then I went to Twitter to all my memesters, like my favorite accounts that post memes. I'm like, okay, well, I, there's, a, there's a mother. There's another one. I don't know if that'll play very well. Some people might not identify with, you know, that image. So then I went to MidJourney and I typed Bitcoin bouquet Bitcoin bouquet, something like that. Bam, I got 12 different pictures. Click, 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 click. Ah, there's one with the Bitcoin in the middle and orange. And I like the orange and it's black background. Copy, paste, okay. I just made it myself. And, you know, I, I would say as an artist, I have no talent at all. And when I was going through school, um, I would not have been interested in art history or art because if you take an art class but you can't paint and you can't draw right this experience comes to a grinding halt in a hurry but if i could roll the clock back and do it again i would take a really detailed art class because now what i realize is i can produce anything in any style and any texture you know you know in the style of of any of 10,000 artists right? And then you start discovering light. There's like infinite light. There's infinite, you know, I, I tripped over anodized titanium 
and I was typing, give me a Bitcoin and anodized titanium. And it's posted on Twitter. It ran really well, by the way. I didn't even know there was a style of anodized titanium. But once you, once you have the tool in your hand, you realize that, that there's an entire language of imagery that professional photographers and professional artists, they know. Uh, and it was off limits to the layman uh, until mid-journey or, or other AI <coughs> generative tools. But today, you could generate your own music. You might generate your own video. You might generate your own art. You might, gen you know, you might generate your own songs, your own raps, your own whatever. And the ROI is much higher. Like, uh, I, I had two paintings on my yacht. I don't like the paintings, you know. 20 years ago, you have to hire an artist to repaint them. This time around, I said, you know, give me two Polynesian girls in the style of Kandinsky. And someone said, well, why don't you try this one? <laughs> Plugged in another one. I spun up some images. I said, I shipped them off to, uh, you know, to a, a painting, you know, like a, a 3D printer that does paintings on canvas. They come back. I'm going to put them on my boat. That's I so do cool. my own art. <laughs> I, can, I can curate my own life. It's a, so it's new platforms, new things. And sometimes, you know, uh, the old way was you're in a big organization surrounded by hundreds or thousands of people and there's a big network. And, you know, you can say one-tenth as much or one one-hundredth as much and you're a hundred times slower. And the new way is maybe it's Peter and Danny <laughs> and you're your own network and you do what you want to do and you're much more agile and you've got more distribution channels and, uh, you know, you can create totally new forms of content never before possible. So I would say you look at, uh, look at the platforms of the day and ask the question, if I put an hour of work in, what gives me the biggest bang for the buck? And and not to be Debbie Downer, but but my advice is I wouldn't I wouldn't go back and try to replicate the successes of each previous generation of the people that are admired in the culture. They did the best they could at the time, but they were working in unfamiliar territory when they did it. So don't copy them. You, you can, it's okay to learn to play the guitar, fine. I mean, as, but it's an, it's an avocation, right? It's, it's for fun. It's a hobby. Um, like, like it's fun to play chess. You, yeah, sure. Play chess is a hobby, but the, you know, two most successful chess players, Hikaru and, and Magnus, they figured out that chess.com and, and, you know, they're streaming on Twitch they're monetizing on chess.com. And, and the, the greatest example right now for those people that like chess is Magnus said, I'm not playing for the world championship in classical time format. I'm going to play rapid matches, blitz matches, et cetera. Well, the classical time format games are all boring. They take four hours to six hours. Who's going to watch a six-hour chess game in the year 2023? And, and so they're, they're just not good content. They're not fun. Everybody would rather watch, you know, three minute, you know, sat in his bedroom blitz. with his mates playing on Twitch. And, and, and Hikaru, who probably is, he's the highest paid, wealthiest U.S. chess player. He plays on Twitch 
And, and he sits and he banters with his audience. He chats. People are like, man, you're not, you're not looking at you. It's like, what could I say, guys, man? This is just who I am. Yeah. You know, what do you think about, you know, such and such? Well, and, and he gives you political opinions. It's hilarious. He crushes his opponents. And then and he, he's got the chess.com logo on the bottom. And people are giving him tips or something on Twitch. It's like, you know, I can only stream on Twitch, guys. That's just the rules. I don't make the rules, blah, blah, blah. And then at later on, he posts on YouTube. And when you ask him what's his profession, he says, I'm not a chess player, I'm a streamer. And I'm like, ha! Like, yeah. But like he's, you know. It's, it's like what happened with cricket. Guy thinks for himself. Yeah. So there we go. And end of sermon. <laughs> good luck. Good luck, man. How was that? You have the one thing, good. by the way, that no one else has, which is you're young, you have your youth and any, you know, anybody in their 40s, 60s and 80s would pay nearly infinite to be sitting where you are right now to have the tools at your disposal. So have at it. I was going to ask quickly, um, you talked about that five-year window with any new technology that comes into the world to have like a significant impact with it. You've got to get in early. With AI, do you think that five-year window's run out now? No, I think the clock started six months ago. And I, I, you know, like what you saw was okay. Well, people can go and they can chat on uh, on GPT. But what you haven't seen is people unleashing uh, an artificial intelligence agent. Right? You see the the news this week was Carol AI, some some Instagram or some Snapchat. Snapchat personality created an AI girlfriend version of herself that she's actually selling online to thousands of men. <laughs> so she she created an AI girlfriend with a combination of of things. Now, and so she's she's the first woman to launch an AI girlfriend. She won't be the last, right? She charges by the minute, right? It might be that the business model is AI girlfriend ten dollars a month, not ten dollars a minute, but we'll see. Um, I think creating uh, full autonomous AIs that do things, right? You know, can you create an, uh, a bot that'll drive your car? Can you create a bot that'll do your accounting? Can you do uh, create a bot that that will be your lawyer? Can you, you know, can you? Like I, I talk to people in the Sailor Academy. We have courses. We upload them. They're free. I said, you know, well. It seems to me like now you can create like a, a digital professor that's got a hundred PhDs that will interactively tutor anybody for free that knows everything. So, you know, once upon a time, uh, the most powerful man in the world was Philip, king of Macedon. The most promising heir in the world was Alexander, his son, soon to be Alexander the Great. And Alexander's tutor was Aristotle, the most learned you know, polymath in the world at the time, it's not, it's not often that you get the smartest person in the world to be your personal tutor, but now everybody can have the smartest person in the world. Maybe it's coming. So with regard to AI, I think you've got like 60 months and in those 60 months, you know, people are going to chip away at that sometime. It might be you've got uh, 10 years uh, on certain things, but but this is the decade where people are going to create extraordinary things. I I'm sure there'll be a girl, you know, I mean, look at the Kardashians. Could you imagine the Kardashians being billionaires 40 years ago 
in, in the era of People magazine, it was the magazine and it was Entertainment Tonight that monetized your celebrity and they kept all the money. And the Kardashians were possible because social media platforms allowed them to own their own brand and monetize their own celebrity. But imagine what happens if, if you can convert yourself and you can do something for me. Well, maybe you can create an AI that can do that thing for a million people at the same time. Okay, so what will it be? I don't know, but, but uh, I think you should pay attention and think real hard. And generally what happens is the, again, you notice how like, you know, octogenarians don't really embrace, you know, new ideas as enthusiastically as, as 20 somethings and teenagers. It's, it's just human nature. At some point you just, A, you don't have the need, they're comfortable. <laughs> right? They just want to be left alone. And then B, you know, they, they don't, uh, they don't have the kind of neuroplasticity, you know, when, when you're between zero and 10, you want to learn Chinese or Spanish or Russian. Yeah. It's a hundred percent likely you'll master it fluently. And then every decade that goes on, right. You just get less flexible, and you get less economically flexible, less culturally flexible, less technically flexible, you know. And so right now, I think it'll be some, you know, somebody, uh, you know, will just look and they'll create some outrageously compelling thing that no one could ever do before, that no one ever thought to do. And uh, it'll probably be with, it almost certainly be with one of these new platforms because, you know, you get to the point where where humans just have this way within 10 years of, of using a new technique every which way they possibly can. And it's what they call the S curve. You can't do anything for a thousand years. And then you hit the curve of commercialization and now you can do stuff. And we go from Wright brothers to the moon in 66 years. And then you hit a wall, hit a wall. And like all the modern, you know, modern airplanes designed in the seventies and the sixties. And they kind of like got stuck because fuel and engine technology, they just didn't advance. And, and, uh, and so we're, we're waiting for this fundamental engine that allows you to do something, you know, uh, catalytic and transformational. And yeah, you know, you can, you can, you know it when you see it, like when you see an, you know, uh, an AI bot that's read everything the human race has ever written and can spit it back to you in a split second. Yeah. It's like, okay, uh, eh, interesting, you know, um, you just, you got to internalize that. There's a few other things, right? Like, you know, there's certain, certain types of chips that are interesting. The unreal engine, when I look at that, I think, someone can create a world that's getting close to the real world. Yeah. Right. It's unbelievable. Have you seen some of this stuff? I, I have seen some of it, but not recently, but look at unreal engine 5.1. This show is brought to you by Iris energy. Now Iris energy is the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low cost excess renewable energy. And they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us. So they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. 
Now, we're going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events, and they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N Also, today we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products. and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot dot com. I mean, look, you, you've had a multi-decade career now. You've seen a lot of technologies come. You know, you talked about it you know, from the, the computer, you've seen the internet, Bitcoin, now AI. Is is AI just another technology or, or do you? is it something even more special to you? Like, is it caught? Is it grabbed you in a way? Maybe th- other things haven't. It's it's pretty transformational. I, I, you know, I would call it digital intelligence. For the first time, we're just on the cusp of real digital intelligence, and and it's it's more than just a tool because digital intelligence means like w- once the computer is able to do it, it does it a million times better, a million times faster, a million times cheaper, right? And it's a singularity type moment. And then generally technology is is an acid and and at some point it just dematerializes and eats away the thing that you use. For example, this destroyed the A-track tape, the record, it destroyed CDs, it destroyed DVDs, it destroyed cameras, it destroyed scanners, so many things that used to be physical things in the world, you know, voice recorders, they all just kind of dematerialized into that phone. With AI, I think it's dematerializing things and, and services and products and ideas in a disturbing fashion. <laughs> We could talk. We, it's a totally different subject, but I think it's a, it's a more powerful technology than certain other technologies people get excited about. And I, if they figure out how to make the car drive itself, right, then you're talking about increasing the capital intensity by a factor of ten of all the vehicles in the world. But, but you may be profoundly, you know, how many tens of millions of jobs just get eviscerated 
Is that a concern, or do you think we will just figure out? No, I think job? we should be concerned. You do. I I, I think you. it's I think it's one of humanity's great opportunities and one of humanity's great threats. Because we've started to use it, I've started to use it. I I compare AI to me to Google. When I first discovered Google, I had that moment I realized I could do all of this, find all this information all of a sudden, and it just became something I used every day. There's lots of cool internet technologies to come along. Spotify was great. But this is the first time I'm genuinely going to AI regularly to solve problems and do things for me. Uh, it's making me more productive. Uh, anything where I have to do any writing, I've, I don't have writer's block anymore because I, if I do, if I can't think of it straight away, I get I go into the AI and I say, write me something, and I use that as the kind of trigger to write what I want to write. I might take part of it, all of it, or none of it, but it's just it's sped me up. I wrote a strategy for my football team the other day. I started it in AI, and that gave me a nine-point plan. I turned it into a ten-point plan. I removed a bit, added a bit, but I'm quicker and faster, and we can see with this what we do, the amount of things it can do. And so then when I try and think about other uh, careers, businesses, industries, Realize there's a lot of jobs under threat. You know, if if you're um, if you're a Roman general and you have a trireme and has 300 rowers in it, then you're generating 30 horsepower. And uh, if you have one of those dinky, like really small dinky dinghy engines, you have a 70 horsepower <laughs> engine behind your boat in the modern world and uh and we obliterated the need for tens of for manpower and in so many areas you know a typical cars got three four hundred horsepower you know think about think about you know the average person when they get 300 horsepower it used to be a hundred years ago the rich person had two horsepower or four horsepower you know carriage and we went to the point where a poor person has 400 horsepower. Um, and I think AIs like that, where there's a lot of people that, that um, weren't able to generate perfect legal, uh, legal uh, documents or prose or perfect business letters or, you know, a witty rap. And now anybody can. And in fact, the person that uses the AI will probably look more intelligent than the, the actual talented person that doesn't. Um, and so in, in this particular case, it's, you know, there was a world where, where the strong could dominate the weak, and then we invented the gun, and then the weak with the gun became the strong. And if you were, you know, you could spend your entire life, you know, training in the martial arts. But at the end of the day, you know, when you when you read the book, what should I do? Well, if you really need to defend yourself, you should get a gun, right? So it's a leveler. It's yeah, it's a it's a leveler. But it, you know, let's take robots. You know, I, you know, I see the Lux Friedman interview with, uh, you know, the CEO of Boston Dynamics, and they've got the one little robot dog, and they're going to make him a happy robot dog to be your pet, right? And they just talk about that for four hours, okay? And then you go on Twitter, you see, you know, you see a video that's maybe ten seconds long without any narrative, and it's a warehouse with a thousand of those robot dogs doing push-ups, 
And then you go and you see one robot dog with the gun on it, yep. shooting the dog, the gun. And then you think, you know, it's kind of hard. You know, we're, we're talking about turning, ro getting robots to be able to cook our food and be nice to us, and you know, be companions and 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 box things and carry boxes through warehouses and do backflips. That's all hard. But let me tell you what isn't hard: put a bomb on a robot dog. Right, like at the end of the day, if you're asking how will the next war be fought, you know, just give me ten thousand robot dogs and put an explosive device on each of the ten thousand dogs. It's it's too hard to aim the gun, right? It's it's certainly too hard to get the, you know, to. And now let's say you're a soldier. I don't know. I get. Should you be afraid for your job? Like, who's who wants a hundred thousand soldiers in the army with guns? Like, and by the way, would you want to be one of those hundred thousand soldiers when twenty-seven robot dogs with explosives come walking one at a time toward you? No, you can it, it I've seen that black mirror. Yeah, it you, can, you can see like there's no future. <laughs> like the idea of armies, there's no future to armies. The idea of aircraft with pilots in them. There's no future to that. The Navy, there's no future to a ship with people on it. Yeah, you know, the future is swarms of drones in the air and on land and the sea. And when I say swarms, I mean, like, I'm not going to manufacture one. I'm going to manufacture 100,000 of them. And I'm going to get the manufacturing cost down to $1,000, $3,000 a thing. And, uh, and, you know, the cost of a pilot in an F-35 is $3 million to train, and the F-35 is a $50, $100 million aircraft. Why not just a $5,000 switchblade, and why don't I just drop, I could drop 1,000 of them out of the back of a C-135 or a B-50, <laughs> anything 500 miles away. And, and of course... You know, the, the initial reaction, if you, if you go and you watch drone races, they're sponsored by the U.S. Air Force. Huh. Okay, uh, interesting. So the Air Force wants to sponsor drone, drone pilots because it wants to recruit the next, the next generation of drone pilots. But the, the point I'm getting to is that is even looking antiquated right now. I mean, why wouldn't you just put an AI chip in 18,000 drones and just give them a target or just give them an algorithm? Like every time you see a tank, a tent, a building a cluster of 10 soldiers with uniforms on, you're done. You you know, so every war, you fight the last war. Yeah. And all this stuff in our world is about fighting the last war, but the next war is something profoundly different. And a lot of it's because of the ability to put digital intelligence into anything. It also makes the idea of war much more politically pal pal palatable because if there's no human cost to your country, at least, if it's, you're just sending robots, like I don't think people will be against the war as much. Like if it was all robots in Iraq and Afghanistan, Let the do you robots slog it out. Yeah, I don't know. It's terrifying if you're on the receiving end of the robots. Absolutely. Yeah, like I mean, didn't didn't we do a movie about that? <laughs> a very famous one. Is this the one I've not seen? Is this Terminator? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's not seen. What Terminator. are we going to do when Skynet becomes self-aware? Yeah. So we uh, we had it up in a recent interview. I, I uh, brought up uh, Terminator Three because that's the moment. At the end, where he's like, he realized there was nothing they could ever have done. This was, this was always going to happen. It's the reality. And we actually put it. I said to Danny last night, I was like, right, we're going to watch Terminator one, two, and three. We've got to see how this plays out. 
Well, I, I think I think that uh, there's a lot of opportunity. We could talk. We could have. We want to be cheerful and constructive. Yeah. I'll give you four hours of great AI things we could do. But but in terms of the the threat that I would immediately focus on, it's basically AI driven bots in cyberspace or and AI driven robots in actual space, right? And um, the AI-driven robots are are a bit behind because it's harder to do. You, you know, a robot is a machine that also has digital intelligence. The bots, though, the bots. You know, I I think fundamentally, there's no reason why you can't launch millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of bots in cyberspace that will imitate humans. Actually, there will be better humans than the humans are. There's, you know, any and so. I actually believe that to a certain degree, there are many distortions we have in the world today that have been bot driven. I, you know, I have observed when I did, when I drilled down that 95% of the toxicity in my own online experience was bot driven. It was never humans. It was when, when there is, when there's a malefactor attempting to sow the seeds of civil war, it wasn't a human. It's like, like I, like what would what would I do if I wanted to destroy your society? Uh, you know, I would convince you that he's going to murder you, and convince you that he's going to murder you, and I would do it by you know by distorting reality, and I would just step back and let the two of you fight it out. Do you think there's a chance with this kind of malignant behavior that's that could plague the internet that we maybe end up rejecting it and go back to a lot of in-person interactions? Is there a hope, a potential for that? It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a, a very healthy response, and I've had the same thought myself. Yeah. It's like when you see this, you start thinking that maybe we rely on these things too much. I mean, we, we, just a, a small analogy to, to this would be the podcast during COVID era when everything was remote. I mean, the first time we did an interview was remote, and that was a more efficient way of doing things. and we could make more money and we didn't have to travel. We didn't have the cost. We could also get uh, easier access to bigger guests and more downloads. It was a, as a business model, it worked better, but we've sacrificed all that and chosen to travel, chosen to have the studio, chosen to rent the thing. And we make 25, 30% less money we can because we know this is better. And so like my only hope is that, that in some ways it becomes almost unusable, so you just reject it. I can't go into that place anymore. Go back to the woods with the Playboy magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The future will be some hybrid. What you do know, you think? What mix is not clear. What's uh, it like for you as kids? Like, because you, the world you're describing, it finds I find it very hard to come to a place where humans are even needed at all. It's pretty pretty true. And I know it's like a topic that's brought up a lot within AI, but what's your view on where it leaves us because and what it leaves us? Well, if the AIs do take over, hopefully they'll like us. <laughs> I rather think they might run the world better than we do. <laughs> we'll see. I you know we're we're approaching the singularity where where things can veer in so many different directions. You know, I, I joked to someone, someone, I feel like I know how the world will end. And it's 
the, the other day I woke up and I looked at my iPhone and it said, uh, you know, there's a security update, you know, you know, and you read the, the, the uh, description it says certain bug fixes and security improvements. And you either install or you don't, but if you don't every day, it asks you to install. So you're going to install it. And I feel like if there ever really was an artificial intelligence and they infiltrated the center of Apple or the center of Google, they would just insert a Trojan horse piece of code into that security update, push it out to 5 billion or 6 billion smartphones, just sit there with a back door for who knows how long. And then one day you just wake up and your phone either just goes blank. <laughs> yeah, maybe if it's colorful, if you want some melodramatic meltdown, everybody's phone just turns off. But more likely, you would just see the 100,000 most powerful people in the world. They would just start to send messages to each other, moving money around or launching, you know, initiatives or starting wars or or whatever they're going to do. And the human race will just get taken along for the ride. And that, I think, you know, that has made, if there's any, any re result, it's made me much more passionately committed to Bitcoin because I actually think if, if Bitcoin, what, what's the problem with every system in a world of AI? The problem with it, with every system is what you just said, which is the AIs are better than the humans. The humans aren't necessary anymore. So to the extent that there are humans in the loop, whether they're soldiers or pilots or whether or not they're programmers, if the AI gets smarter than us and starts to learn a million times faster than us, then every single system with a human in the loop is a weak link. And the, the struggle we have all the time is how do we take the humans out of the loop? And, and Bitcoin is, is the greatest example of a system constructed so that no humans are in charge. There's no, there's no humans to corrupt it, right? Um, you're not trusting Apple. You're not trusting a set of developers. And uh, I, I think that once, if, if AI is capable of interfering in the, in the concerns of mankind, then every system that has a human in control of it, right, or, or has an attack surface via a code update, right, is going to be attacked. So you, what do you want? You want analog devices that can't be updated. So for example, you know, the swimming pool in your backyard, you know, isn't going to get a code update from Tesla. So when the AI takes over, there'll still be water in the swimming pool and there may still be, you know, potatoes growing and your horse may still be a horse and, uh, and a car with an internal combustion engine without software downloaded, you know, from the central system will probably still keep working and your your gun will keep working. So physical things and Bitcoin, the network will keep working. The things that are going to fail the fastest, the, the most fragile, you know, are these systems get continually updated. And and I, I it's a reason why I think the concept of ossification is more important than ever. It's the things that work well in the universe, if, if we think about the world, it's like uh, 
the speed of sound and the speed of light are constant, right? You, you know, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravitation, attraction, they're constant. No one fixes them or improves them every month. There are no security updates to the universe. That's why the universe works. No one has changed the rate at which the sun, you know, converts, you know, mass into energy. Uh, and so natural law is constant and stable. And the result is that things that are based on it aren't natural and healthy by our standards. And now when you look at man-made things, right, the thing, there are certain things that are stable that will probably continue to work even, you know, after the AIs melt everything. And, uh, they're, they're kind of off the grid. And the stuff that's on the grid, you know, you just can't rely on any of it. And you can't rely on any human being to make the decision. So oftentimes, you know, like with regard to Bitcoin, you ask me, what do I want? Like, I, I don't change it. <laughs> like, I don't want to, do, you know, don't, don't change it, right? Just leave it, leave it alone. Like, like math, the protocol you know, there's a certain set of numbers. There's a zero, a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, a six, seven, eight, and nine. Leave it, right? Yeah, you can come up with other things you could do, but but. Well, what if you got some malignant AI core devs that are anonymous that we can't prove who they are, so they stay anonymous and spend some time getting to know the other core devs, propose a BIP that gets approved, and it's a malignant attack. And that's why you don't you don't want to have centrally downloading, self-updating software. Yeah. Like most of the software on your iPhone right now is just self-updating in the background. You don't even know it updated. And, and so the, the question really becomes like, how secure are all these organizations? How secure are these governmental agencies? And how secure are these banks? Like how many people would it take in any given company to be to be uh, to see super user privileges, like or have root access control, right? And and what is the process? And I, I think um, you know the danger is if there are three people and they can jointly decide to do it, then I can come up with lots of ways to lever, spoof, uh, you know, coerce co-opt the three people, right? So that, that's that's why Bitcoiners, right? That, that's why we know no central counterparty is trustworthy, right? The, the theoretical reason why no bank is trustworthy, no company is trustworthy, no, no, no counterparty is trustworthy because they're all run by people. You know what is trustworthy? What's trustworthy is gravity. If you like lean back in your chair and, you know, I can guarantee you, you will fall over. And I can guarantee you that someone in the Himalayas that never had a college education will also fall. It is completely trustworthy. And because it's trustworthy, you can build a machine based on gravity. <laughs> I, you know, I can create skis that will work in the Himalayas mm. or in America because I know the physical qualities of snow and gravity, right? Um, and no one's going to change it. So Bitcoin, to the extent that it's physical, you can build a machine on it because you can trust it. Um, you would never want to be in a situation where the Bitcoin nodes were, you know, getting auto updated and someone's auto pushing. Right. The truth is that, you know, at some point the developers will come up with an idea which is iatrogenic, right? I, I tend, I personally tend to be of the belief that the, I mean, the, the only real 
interesting use case for, for changing Bitcoin core code is when there's an obvious, when there's a bug that is crippling and we all understand it and agree it's a bug, or when there's a fatal threat and we all, and we build consensus that there's a fatal threat that will burn the network to zero. And if there's a fatal, call it a fatal bug or a fatal attack surface that forms 50 years from now or whenever it does, then I suppose you might dispatch people to change protocol. But changing the protocol for, for functionality or performance or to make it sexier or, you know, bells and whistles and this, all those things are just profoundly dangerous, I think. And, and the idea, the idea in the crypto ecosystem, which this is not strong in Bitcoin, Bitcoin is probably the most conservative, right? Yeah. But the idea you see in the other proof of stake networks, right, where it's just routine, we'll do a hard fork, hard fork, we got a roadmap. The, the idea that we have to keep upgrading and keep changing things, that itself is pernicious and it's going to be more pernicious in the world of AI because what that says is you've got an application, but you don't have you don't have truth or integrity or the base layer. And if you're going to build a machine, you need to build a machine based on natural law that is invariant. And uh, it, it stands the reason that Bitcoin is the only network in cyberspace that runs without human intervention that's secure, then probably the only way to create anything else that's secure in cyberspace is to integrate it with Bitcoin. You see, like, I, if I want to, you know, there's this phrase, Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah. I, you know, I'm of the opinion that Bitcoin fixes everything, right? I think Bitcoin is a solution to every city, every state, every country, every corporation, every network, every application, every product. There's a way to embed Bitcoin in it that makes it better. And I think right now, the one thing Bitcoin does is it gives you this uh, immutable you know, in, in, immutable, immortal, you know, ledger, right? That's shared. And it, it gives you a, a form of, of integrity and truth and, uh, and a, physical, uh, a physical presence. So like you have a good idea, public private key cryptography. Okay, so you spin up a public key and a private key and you create a Noster account. That's good, but the problem with that is my AI can create a billion Noster accounts. How long did it take you to create your Noster account? Took you like 20 minutes and then it takes you 20 minutes to post every day. My AI created 20 billion Noster accounts and it posts 20 billion times as frequently as you. And it's actually more entertaining and more charismatic than you are. And so maybe I'm just going to warp reality because what you've got is you've got something in cyberspace, but there's no thermodynamic materiality to it or thermodynamic conservativeness to it. So you want to fix it. You have to combine the idea of the public-private key with a transaction on the Bitcoin network. You do one transaction, you showed me you spent a dollar. Okay, well, now your billion, your billion Noster bots cost you a billion dollars. And when I find out that you're a Noster bot and I block you, it costs you a dollar. So there's a cost and there's a consequence. If I want to make it a bigger consequence, right? I, I think the most stunning thing, right, right in front of our face 
is the, the Satoshi phenomena, and it's this. Satoshi's got $30 billion of Bitcoin sitting on that blockchain, and we can see it in the form of a million coins. And we know that Satoshi could digitally sign a message and prove that he, she, they exist, and they control that money, and they could do it quickly. And we know that for 14 years, there's been a multi-billion dollar reward to anybody that could hack that. Still there. And so if, so what about this? What if I actually want to create an orange check uh, where, where I basically have a public key burned into the Bitcoin blockchain with one transaction, but then I create a green check, which is I've actually got that transaction attached to a million Satoshis. And then a proof of reserve for identity. And then what if I do a blue check with a hundred million Satoshis? And what if I do a, you know, a purple check and it's it's tied to an account with a hundred Bitcoin? And now you've got a hierarchy of, of identity and you can now build uh, a hierarchy of security and cost and consequence. And you could layer that sort of idea into all of these other systems, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles, the Microsofts. And I, I, think, I think what Bitcoin, what's special about Bitcoin is they've combined, the Bitcoin community, they understand proof of work. So they've got hard, they've, they've got physical energy, analog energy. They've combined it with digital energy in the form of the SHA-256 hashing. So they've, they've, they've got digital power there. I, actually, what I meant was, yeah, com compute power plus analog energy gets you digital power. So we've got this concept of digital power, and it's the most powerful network. We also have the concept of public and private key cryptography implemented. We've also got a third concept, which you went ad infinitum about in a number of your interviews on multi-sig, you know, and, and multi-sig and multi-factor and digital hardware signing devices, right? And if you look at the things people are struggling with in this world, we're struggling with how do we actually secure a system? And the answer is probably some combination of multi-signature physical signing devices, real world presence of, of energy, and then and then uh, computer power that is defensible. Like if the AI took over all of Google, Facebook, and Apple, I'm comfortable that they still can't stop the Bitcoin network. Mm. And that's, if they took it over on one day, every single thing turned to attack the Bitcoin network, no amount of intellect allows you to brute force it because it literally is a brute force defense. And so cryptography is brute force. 350 exahash is brute force. 15 gigawatts is brute force. And so right now, what, what Satoshi created, right, was, yeah, the world's hardest money. Yeah. The world's greatest decentralized network. Yeah. The first decentralized network. Yeah. But Satoshi also showed us that I can prove authenticity to the entire world instantly. And I can defend something worth billions or, or tens of billions or hundreds of billions against a brute force attack. And that actually offers the promise, not just of fixing the money, 
but it actually offers the promise of securing cyberspace because, you know, I think at some point we'd like to see all these people that have control of these enterprise systems, we'd like to see their, their privilege checked by something in the physical world, like multi-signature, thermodynamically sound uh, authentication network. And you can do it. Uh, you, could, you could implement orange checks on Twitter where everybody that wanted to post on Twitter needed to do a Bitcoin transaction <laughs> once in their life. And you, you, know, you completely change the way people think. But I, I'm interested... I'm personally interested in the enterprise applications for enterprise security, right? So, you know, like mm -hmm. the very colorful ordinal inscriptions debate, you know, that popped up and... I'm just totally on the fence on it. NFTs. Just, I've been kind of on the fence with it in that I want Bitcoin to be really good money, uh, um, but I don't really care if people find other uses for the protocol if they're useful, because I think if it's useful, it'll stick around. I don't think ordinals... The future of ordinals is JPEGs. I think it's something else. I'm not sure what. And therefore, if this network can do more than money and do other things, then great. What we should embrace that. Yeah, I I think um, you got to look. I try to look out thirty years. And when I look out thirty years, I I think. Well, there, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of corporations that are going to build something on top of Bitcoin. And there's going to be endless generations and evolutions of, of layer two protocols. There'll be Lightning, the next version of Lightning. There may be a competitor to Lightning called Thunder, right? There'll be all sorts of open protocols. There'll be a market uh, debate over that. There's going to be there's going to be lots of people using Bitcoin in lots of different ways. Um, and my view on this entire debate is, uh, A, uh, I'm an Austrian economist. So if all value is subjective and, uh, and the world, the marketplace is continually generating ideas faster than we can conceive them, then we should just let the free market function and it's going to generate all sorts of ideas and 99% of them are going to fail. And so there's a 99% probability that, that some new idea that someone came up with is not a good one and it's going to fail. But if you're an Austrian economist and you believe in freedom, you know, yeah, you, you can be free to not invest in that business idea, but you should just let all the businesses get launched and wait and see what happens. Um, Bitcoin, I think of Bitcoin as scarcity and I think of, I, I think of um, types of scarcity. First order scarcity is 21 million Bitcoin. There'll never be more than that. There'll be lots of people that will buy Bitcoin that you will not agree with. And there will be lots of uses of Bitcoin you will not agree with. And there'll be governments that love it. You will not agree with it. And they call it money for enemies, right? So I don't criticize whoever for buying the Bitcoin. There were people that that didn't want MicroStrategy to buy Bitcoin. Yep. You know, you remember. That's bad for Bitcoin. Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is 30, 40 years from now, if Bitcoin's a solution to everything, everybody owns Bitcoin. So it's just a question of the order. So, But the, the, the critical thing is, don't increase the number of Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> 21 million is the critical thing. The second order scarcity is the bandwidth of the, the transaction bandwidth, the block size, you know, and 
you know, right now, post SegWit with the uh, four megabyte blocks, and I, you know, the purists would say we probably should have stuck with one megabyte, megabyte, but I wasn't here then, and maybe I wouldn't have been that smart then. Maybe I wouldn't have been a purist. Maybe I had to go through it to think it. But it is what it is, right? And and today, I, I don't think the exact number matters, whether it's one, two, or four. I think what's critical is that it not change at you know when you're um you remember we talked about plasticity neuroplasticity and you know when you're young in your youth you can take a lot of knocks and you'll recover uh you get more fragile as you get older and so bitcoin in its youth went through a, f a few distortions not nearly so many as the other cryptos which is why it's bitcoin and why it succeeded but there's a point when you fill your niche and you just can't, you can't radically change anymore without killing yourself. And, and so the, the commonly understood reason for why you don't want to change the block size is we don't want to centralize the network. We want to keep nodes that you can run. But, but it's not actually, in my opinion, it's not the best argument. Right? I mean, the truth is you could probably make an argument that an eight megabyte block space will also be decentralized or not. Now we're in this little debate over the cost of, um, of storage versus the rate at which the Bitcoin blockchain increments. Uh, and um, the better debate is don't change it because it's unethical to change it. Okay? Don't change it because it's evil. It's unethical. That's why you don't do it. Why? Because every time you change the block space, you defraud or, or you deprive the Bitcoin miners of revenue. So if you actually keep doubling the blocks uh, size, you keep driving transaction fees down. And so you're meddling in the economics of someone that in good faith invested in Bitcoin. If I invested all of my life savings in Bitcoin mining on the assumption that the blocks would remain constant and the Bitcoin would remain constant. And then some developer came up with a really good reason why we ought to, you know, increase the Bitcoin, give some of it to the developers and then triple the block size. So the transaction fees at Binance won't be as expensive. I would be furious, right? But more than furious, right? Yeah, you have stolen their property in the same way that the Nazis stole the Jews' property. <laughs> You've stolen it in the same way that every authoritarian has stolen property for the past 10,000 years, right? The, the history of humanity is full of powerful people that change the rules so that they can steal your land, so they can claim it via eminent domain, so they can tax it away. They, you know, they pass a law making it illegal for you to bake bread. It's illegal for you to ship. It's illegal to cross the river from New Jersey to New York. It's, these are all just different unfair rules. So, so um, changing the transaction bandwidth fundamentally is, is an unprincipled decision because you deprive people in the ecosystem of their property rights. And, and it's to, to the benefit of someone, to the detriment of someone else. And you basically, uh, you basically uh, retroactively, you know, change the rules, right? 100% right. In that I understand changing the 21 million 
that is essentially theft in that you are debasing the Bitcoin for everyone else. But I've, yeah, for a long time we've been doing this. I've heard many people say, look, there may come a time in the future where we will need to increase the block size because Bitcoin is so popular. It's become prohibitively costly doubling, to use. Doubling the block size is theft too. Cutting, doing anything to interfere with the with, with the scarcity of the first the first derivative of scarcity is transaction bandwidth, right? So so obviously if you if you double the amount of Bitcoin and gave it all to yourself, that's obvious theft. People can figure mm. it out. But if you double the transaction bandwidth such that you drive the transaction fees from twenty five billion a year to twenty five million a year. You've stolen hundreds of billions of dollars from somebody, right? The the actual free market in transactions is sensitive to the bandwidth, and so so tinkering with it in or in an artificial way, and it is artificial when you change the code, mean, means you are directly depriving all of the miners of their revenue. Assuming that transactions remain constant. Well, in, in any scenario, increasing the amount of bandwidth drives down the transaction fees. So, so right? with, with but, but I guess the, the point I'm... If you, regardless of what you assume, right? You can have any assumption about transaction demand for the next 100 years. But if you double or triple or whatever the bandwidth for transactions, you drive the fees down by some substantial portion. And that means you probably take Bitcoin miners that might be profitable, make them unprofitable. And you take a lot of businesses that would be in business and you drive them out of business. And of course, mo most horrific is anyone that's, a, anyone that's a theoretician looks at it and says, that was an attack on Bitcoin because you've corrupted the protocol. Therefore, I don't trust the network anymore, which means the next $100 trillion doesn't go on the network. This show is brought to you by my new sponsor, Unchained. Now, if you've been listening to my show for a while, you'll know I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term. I'm a hodler, which is why I'm happy to recommend the Unchained IRA. Their Bitcoin IRA lets you control the keys to your tax-advantaged Bitcoin and if you have a Roth IRA, that means you don't pay capital gains on the price appreciation. Now, unfortunately, most IRA providers require that you give up control of your Bitcoin, but not with Unchained. Controlling your keys with the Unchained IRA protects you from exchange hacks or frozen accounts. And Unchained is an all-in-one solution. They'll help you establish a traditional or Roth IRA, set up your cold storage vault, roll over your existing 401k or IRA, and if you want one-on-one -on -one guidance, their concierge team will send you devices and walk you through setting up and securing your keys at your own pace. If you want to set up your IRA today, head over to unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did or schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more. That is unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And if you want to get $50 off, please use the promo code what Bitcoin did at the checkout. Next up today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. 
Also, Bazaar, we have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Also, today we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. So, so do you think so? Was Segwit theft then? The upgrade, Seg, so the upgrade to Segwit, where block space went up from uh, essentially one to four megabytes, the increased block space we got. It was. Is that a theft? It was. It was an ethical quandary, <coughs> wasn't it? Yeah. It was a war, and both. You know, it was a war, and the way to justify it would be it was a war, and we thought this was the least worse option because the other side was going to do something worse. Yeah. But, but I don't. You know, I don't think there are good guys in a war. Yeah. And like if you if you look all around the world and study the, the history of politics, it seems like the winners are just the least worst governments. They're all bad. There's no good. It was like Trump's answer the other day when they tried to corner him and made him choose who he wanted to win the war and he wouldn't pick. And he said, I just want it to end. But you know, like the 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 slight change, the truth is Segwit undermined transaction fees, you know, to a certain degree. I mean, it's a, it changed the um, it changed the contract with the miners after the fact and then taproot changes it again and these are these are very risky things because they change all the economics and the economic incentives and the, and and the densities and you know you could argue they were they were done either for expedient purposes or for functionality and it's right it's true right there's a lot more functionality post taproot and there's a bit more. There's a lot of functionality that you couldn't implement without SegWit, right? Right, and a lot of. But yeah, right. The the fundamental things we're staring at right now, like Lightning and like inscriptions, you know, benefited and maybe were essential. You almost needed SegWit and Taproot to get there, right? Yeah. So that's a very scary history, right? The 14-year the history of Bitcoin is very scary, but we've arrived at this place right now where it's pretty clear that there's extraordinary functionality that you can implement. You're staring at it with all, you know, all these inscriptions, and it's pretty clear that you can do extraordinary things with lightning. And it's, it seems to me there's no reason why you can't go from 500 billion to 5 trillion to 50 trillion and I'm not even sure we can't go to 250 trillion based upon the current functionality I see. When, if the base layer can't do something, then the question is, can the layer two do it? And if the layer two can't do it, if you wanted to achieve it, you would have to do it with layer three. And you, you can make an argument, right? You can make an argument that if SegWit and Taproot had never happened, 
yeah, you wouldn't be doing this stuff in the layer two protocols, but layer threes, you know, the money might have been harder and maybe the layer threes would have would have come along and people like Apple and Google would have embraced Bitcoin or would be embracing Bitcoin or some other company or bank would embrace Bitcoin and they would just fill the gap. You know, there's there's trade-offs everywhere. Um, so, I, but having said that, just to be clear, I'm not going to second guess history. Mm -hmm. I would say war is hell. Bitcoin was a very unlikely creation it was very unlikely to survive you know so many other versions didn't survive when it got to the block size wars it was a bitter civil war and there were probably miss you know what what would be the word misunderstood decisions made on both sides and there were probably some poor there was very poor logic in lots of places or maybe logic that would be easy to criticize today but I, I do think Bitcoin's better. Uh, you know, we have Bitcoin is better for Segwit. It's better for Taproot. They are stable. If they had blown the network up, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> then, then I wouldn't be saying that. We wouldn't be here. But now, once you've achieved a miracle, like you've started a nuclear furnace or you've started a star, right? You've, you've achieved a miracle. Once you've achieved the miracle, don't look the gift horse in the mouth, right? Don't let the fire go out. And I think you have to shift your view from like, from, from uh, being aggressive. I, I think they, they, you know, when there's Bitcoin cash and there was a lot of other forks, they thought that, you know, the main chain might die. I mean, they literally were fighting for the survival of Bitcoin. I don't think we're surviving, uh, we're fighting for the survival of Bitcoin with the next cool idea that comes along in the year 2024. I do think right now, I think it's very important right now that we have a stable network that people can build upon. And I think that stability means it needs to be stable economically. And that means you got to cap the number of Bitcoin, but you got to cap the bandwidth, right? Because otherwise it's not stable economically. Mm. Remember, we talked about adiabatic lapse or a, you know, a hole in, in, in the fuselage. If you don't cap the bandwidth, then there won't be a healthy transaction fee market. And if there isn't a healthy transaction fee market, then you're eventually going to see your, all your miners go bankrupt and go to zero. And then you open up this Pandora's box of discussing putting in an inflation supply mm -hmm. to feed, you know, to support the miners. And that's an awful place to be. So... It needs to be economically sound to be successful. It needs to be technically sound. And you're a lot more likely to be technically sound if you stop changing things, mm. right? I mean, if you, if you live long enough, you start, you, you find that most software becomes a Rube Goldberg device. There's too much code and every piece of code's got more bugs. And eventually you're carrying so much technical debt, you can't maintain it. And so we don't, we don't want it to be one iota more complicated than it needs to be. And then it needs to be ethically sound, okay? And the, and the root cause of all unethical behavior is someone that thinks that they can work the political process or weaponize the political process in order to distort economics to their benefit. So, for example, you know, who's winning if, um, if we censor inscriptions? Well, I mean... Binance would be winning. Binance mm -hmm. wouldn't actually have to in, uh, 
install Lightning. They wouldn't have to implement Lightning. Coinbase doesn't have to implement Lightning if you just artificially keep all the transactions that are not pure monetary transactions off the network. So the exchanges that don't embrace Lightning are winning. Lightning is losing. Uh, companies that implement good Lightning implementations, good channels with good functionality, they're winning from this inscription brouhaha. They would be losing if people were doing a lot more transactions cheaper on the base layer. Companies that want to launch layer two, layer, especially layer three apps that move Bitcoin at the speed of light on a layer three, they're losing if people are using the layer one. And of course, but 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 those are all second order changes. But you guys, every everything you do, it affects there's a positive, there's a negative. Someone's winning, someone's losing. People that don't uh that don't offer lightning in general. Are, are going to suffer if the transactions go up. But let's talk about miners. Miners are the line of first defense for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't understand just how profound and important they are. Um, one thing they do is they throw up a 350 exahash wall, and that's pure, they're digital power centers. And you're going to want as much digital power as possible. And you want to stay ahead of Google and Amazon and the, and the worldwide compute power if you're going to stay secure. So we need them to spend billions and billions of dollars a year on that. This, I mean, the second thing that they're doing, in addition to just defending that, uh, I mean, they're creating a censorship-resistant messaging network because if the miners are, are spread all around the world and they're that powerful, then you can't physically stop the transaction. So, so that's really important. But the second thing they're doing is the miners are the ones that are going to actually be lobbying the politicians to not outlaw Bitcoin in every country. So when a country comes along and, you know, and they attack Bitcoin, the first thing they attack is the miners. And the miners suffer, like in Sweden, when the when there's a massive tax on electricity, or if this White House proposal comes comes to see any support at all, the miners are the first ones to suffer. the The miners will all go bankrupt a decade, ten to thirty years before the network dies, before Bitcoin dies. But think of the miners as your skin. If I flay it off you. Right, you won't be immediately dead, but but death will follow, and so you need the miners to be healthy for a, for a bunch of reasons. They're they're your political defender, they're your physical thermodynamic defender or computational defender. Um, they're also the financial defender of the network because if you look at one of the reasons why Bitcoin is more secure and, and more uh, successful than every other crypto, it's there's like twenty or more publicly traded companies that are Bitcoin miners. So the, the miners actually went and they raised billions and billions of dollars of capital. And then they took themselves public and you see the riots and the marathons and the hut eights of the world and the irises of the world. Those corporate operators are, are then the ambassadors of the Bitcoin community to Wall Street, to the investment banks, Every one of those companies has general counsels. They can all afford PR people. They can afford lobbyists. They create jobs. You know, they're, when, when, a, when a, a crypto promoter, 
are a guerrilla marketer for a crypto proof of stake network, when they actually funnel millions of dollars to a politician, kind of like what Sam Bankman-Fried did when he dumped the hundreds of millions of dollars on the politicians, when they funnel the money and then they whisper in their ear that Bitcoin is not environmentally friendly and that they should be banned, it's going to be the Bitcoin miners that are going to be on the front line fighting that battle. And they're going to be fighting that battle against everybody who comes up with a with a too-good-to-be-true proof-of-stake yo-yo coin that is going to print the coin, sell the coin, <laughs> buy a bunch of politicians, buy a bunch of lawyers, buy a bunch of marketers, and they're going to spread all the, the anti-Bitcoin FUD. So... If you don't have the miners, you don't have physical presence in the real world, and that means you're spinning off in the metaverse, you become virtual only, but you also don't have political presence. You're, you're losing your political presence, you're, you're losing your physical presence, you know, and that's, uh, you're, and you're, you're losing your legal presence. It's so... The biggest problem with, with either changing the block size or censoring the transactions is you're depriving the miners of a revenue stream. And Satoshi gave us this block reward as a subsidy to bootstrap the network, but by the year 2035, it's 99% done. You've got 1% in the next 100 years. And, and of that 1% in the next 100 years, you've got 90% of that coming in the next you know, eight me years of, or something. <clears throat> Kevin, do you remember the um, – who's that Australian comedian, the gun debate? Um, I know who you mean, but I can't remember. His yeah, name. and he talks about the security guard, Kevin, who's paid minimum wage, and he's your security guard. Like if you want the best security in the world, you want to pay your security guards. You know, you've got to have top-level security. You know, if you have security, you want top security. Anyone who's a Bitcoiner who has to think about themselves who want top security, you're basically talking about the security of the network, the first line of defense, and then we've got to ensure they're paid. Yeah. If we weaken them, we weaken Bitcoin. And if you, if you look at it from an Austrian point of view, you've got a city. The city's got 10 square miles in it. You're the mayor. Are you going to pass law after law telling people what kind of things they can do on their land in your city? I don't, I, I don't like bookstores. I do like libraries. I don't like bakeries. I do like restaurants, but not restaurants that serve cake, but restaurants that serve healthy food defined by me. Pretty soon, you've got, you've got someone dictating who can do what in the city. That's very puritanical and it's central planning. And the result is generally the city fails. Like any intelligent person leaves the city because there's an authoritarian telling them what they can and can't do in city limits. And so that's, if you look at this in the context of Bitcoin, if you started telling people who can own Bitcoin and who's not allowed to own Bitcoin, that's first order censorship. When you tell people what kind of transactions they can do on the network, that's second order censorship. When you start dictating who's allowed to mine Bitcoin, that's third order censorship. And, uh, you know, the Austrians would just say, leave it all well enough alone. You're, you're right. You know, probably that person, such and such, sets up a garbage business selling unhealthy food, but then maybe they make enough money to invest in a research, you know, a research effort that discovers penicillin. 
You know, <laughs> like how do you, who are you to judge? Like where will the money find itself? And there's the world's full of people, entrepreneurs that started a business, they failed the first time, they changed it, they, it became a second thing, they changed it again. And the third time around, it's actually pretty useful. And the only way you can invent things is you got to have the freedom to fail. 99.9% .9 of the mobile apps all fail. 99% of all the ventures all fail. I mean, businesses fail all the time. That's why, like, when we come to this issue of, you know, ordinals, inscriptions, NFTs, like, I would never endorse any of it, right? Like, I'm not going to endorse an NFT. I'm not going to endorse a system for creating NFTs. I'm not going to even endorse the use case. I'm just not going to censor someone's ability to do it. I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to deprive them of their freedom because depriving of their, them of their freedom is, is, you know, an ethical lapse, I believe. It's, it's, a, it's a problem. But also, maybe someone will come up with something to inscribe that will be profoundly beneficial to the world. And how are we going to find out unless we give people the freedom to do it? Hmm. Let the market decide. Yeah, let the, let the market decide. I mean, that's that's just Austrian economics. Stop meddling. If, if we're all here in Bitcoin because we believe yeah. that politicians shouldn't meddle, and so I don't think we should meddle in this. I I I don't think you can. You can't. Uh, you can't deprive people the ability to experiment. What you can do is protect the protocol. I, I, I think, by the way, the transactions are going to get much more expensive, Peter. Like, mm. like, like this, this entire debate, it, it misses the, who cares whether it's a dollar or $10 or $25? I mean, let's take the big picture. Look out 30 years. If you're looking to save your wealth, if you had $10 million and you had a choice to buy a $10 million painting, pedigreed painting, to buy a $10 million apartment in New York, or to buy $10 million of Bitcoin, what would you buy? Most people would buy Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Okay. Most Bitcoiners would buy Bitcoin. Most people on this podcast. Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah. like Bitcoin as well. I'm just saying yeah. it's like the people outside haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. So it's a million-dollar transaction fee to buy the art. And it's $600,000 transaction fee to buy the apartment not including taxes. So probably the transaction fee for both of those first two trades is a million dollars. It could be $2 million for the art. You're talking about a 10% commission. 6% commission is basically the status quo for all residential real estate in the world. And if you can get down to five or four, you're genius, right? So the question is, will people one day pay $600,000 to buy a Bitcoin worth 10 million? I think yes. I, I, would you? Of course you would. If you believed in Bitcoin and your choice was you pay a $500,000, $600,000 fee to buy a piece of residential real estate that's got a 2% annual property tax on it, and it's in a high rise and someone's going to put another one up next to it, or you could buy the Bitcoin, you would say, okay, well, I guess I'll just buy the Bitcoin. The transaction fee, whether it's a dollar, $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, or a million dollars, that's just a matter of time. And so I, I think if you look at all, all ways that people store value, the, all the networks have transaction fees. The transaction fees are quite high. The transaction fees to own $10 million of, of an ETF, 
would be $900,000 over 10 years. Almost, I mean, 90 basis points for a year, for 10 years, that's where you get to. Mm -hmm. so, so high transaction fees are uh, on a final settlement are actually much higher than everything else in the world. They're, they've just been obscenely low on the Bitcoin network. And for someone that wants to move $25, then yeah, you care whether it's $1 or $25, but the truth is even $1 is too much to move $25. You, you should be using something like the Lightning Network, or you should be using Cash App and going cash tag to cash tag, or you should find some more efficient way to do it. Um, we want the transaction fees to go up because we want this to ensure the security of the network. But it is, but but it's fair and ethical because the truth is, no one's got a gun to their head, and they're not they're not forced to use Bitcoin to do consumer transactions, mm. right? Everyone that complains about it could have downloaded a Lightning wallet anytime they want. Right, you can you have the freedom to download any of twenty lightning wallets, and you can anytime you want when the ba when the Bitcoin network is slow, you can move some money into the wallet. You know, put decide to you know move your money from your savings account to your checking account, and um, and then once it's in the lightning wallet, you move it around, in essence, friction free, cheap, and so the all the all this does is just catalyzes new applications on layer two and layer three, and that's healthy because there's going to, there needs to be um, an explosion of those applications, and we need to have um, we need to have these Bitcoin miners are like a network of fortresses. You need a network of Bitcoin miners everywhere in the world because the miner in Kazakhstan's fighting for Bitcoin in Kazakhstan. Yeah. And the miner in China is fighting for Bitcoin in China. And the miner in Europe is fighting for Bitcoin in Europe or Sweden or Iceland or Ireland, right? And I could go on ad infinitum. When, when Ethereum went to the merge, they unilaterally disarmed, de-energized, but it's kind of like it's kind of like scuttling your entire navy, right? Or, or, or basically throwing away your air force. Okay, and it got cheaper, right? They're like, oh yeah, it's so much cheaper now. We got rid of our army, our navy, and our air force. It's so much cheaper. And so, what are you going to do with the DOD budget? Well, we're just going to give it to ourselves. It's kind of yeah. What they yeah. did. It's like we're just going to give it to ourselves, and we're going to eliminate the defense and the security system of the network, and it. And the problem is twofold, right? The first problem is an ethical problem. You basically stole the property. You stole, you stole somewhere in the range of $10 billion to $40 billion worth of property from, Bic uh, from ETH miners, right? Whatever the numbers, a lot. They just stole it, right? And they just gave it to themselves. And so there's an ethical problem there. And then there's a systemic problem, which is there's never going to be an ETH miner that goes public. And if you knew enough about securities law, you would know that ETH validators are securities and, and they're unregistered securities. And that, that's the entire debate that the SEC has right now on staking and the like. If you create your own staker, you're, you've created a financial services company that's hyper complicated and there's no, there's no real precedent for it. So 
I don't, I don't think it was wise for a number of reasons. Mm. I think we're lucky right now. I would summarize, we're lucky, we're through Segwit, we're through Taproot, right? It was a war, bad things were done by everybody in the war. <laughs> Some stuff you do, you regret. Now we're here, yeah. the issue is, do you have to do it again? Right? Have we grown up? And I think the Bitcoin at this point has grown up. And now you just let these people launch all these these things, right? You know, if it wasn't for inscriptions, I wouldn't have told my own executive team, I want you to focus on developing enterprise security app applications that leverage the Bitcoin blockchain base layer. Right. So I'm diverting corporate uh, development effort and money and energy to create multi-factor authentication and multi-signature capabilities. And maybe maybe we'll inscribe contracts. Maybe we'll, ins we'll hash some of our documents. Maybe we'll create some other security update that we can use and give that to millions or hundreds of millions of corporate accounts. But, you know, I had the idea from, you know, it's like they're doing it. I, I don't really care for a monkey JPEG. I'm not going to burn that. But, you know, what is something valuable I might burn? And the example I gave, it's like my will. When I burn my will. And if I, if I don't want to burn my entire, I could burn my entire will or I could just hash it. <laughs> I could burn that. I could, I could basically inscribe the hash key of my will, store it away. Because, you know, right? Right, what right now my will is sitting somewhere on paper and anybody with an iPhone could just go and photograph the thing, change a few words, right? Yeah, we should do that, man. Counterfeit it. We should, yeah, well, no. Oh, change, 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 change <laughs> Michael's. Uh, just, to, just to change track, what has this last two years been like for you? Or even, or even a different question to add into that is that um, – People say Bitcoin changes them. Like, has it changed? Do you think you've changed during these two years? Has it had a yeah. profound impact? I mean, look, there's been lots of ups and downs. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, well, like, big ups and downs for you. It's. I think. I think. Um, it's made me even more focused. Yep. Like. Stress, uh, stress like uh, volatility, you know, impacts different people differently. You know, some people that were part of the Bitcoin community, you know, when it was going really well, you know, when when we entered that bear market, they kind of distanced themselves, yeah. and and the impact of that on them was they should diversify. Right. So some people's lesson they take away from it is I got to diversify or distance myself. The lesson I took away uh, from this is this is not going to be easy. We're going to have to redouble our efforts and focus even harder. You thought you could do this and maybe do one, one more thing or two more things. And you realize, no, you just need to keep focused, keep laser like on this thing. This is, um, this is uh, going to be an intense struggle. What's the biggest part of the struggle? Is it the eyeballs on you or the criticism or is it just managing the the up and downs of the the value i think probably um the most challenging thing for me in my current condition uh, or position is is uh 
just managing the uh, mood of the rest of the market, <laughs> like all yeah. the, the media, the investors, right? Like it's, if you've invested enough time, like you have and you have in Bitcoin, then the price fluctuations or, you know, or the r routine FUD doesn't really affect your worldview, right? Yeah. yeah. But if you haven't spent that much time and Bitcoin trades down $5,000 and someone contemporaneously releases some FUD, oh, oh, the US government's going to sell some Bitcoin, you know, I would think, well, it doesn't matter one way or the other if it's true or not true, you know, and, it, and it's irrelevant. But, but the volatility, the volatility creates a news event. And when the price is going up, people have to come up with a narrative explanation for why it's going up. And so that's good. There'll be just a hundred really good stories when the yeah. price is going up. And when the price is going down, there'll be a hundred bad stories or negative stories that have to be invented. You have to come up with, there's something I am deep in human consciousness that drives people to want to explain everything. Has to be a reason for it. Has yeah. to be a reason. So there'll be all this all this negativity and then someone's going to say okay i heard about this is this good for bitcoin what what happens next are we okay are we okay so i have to i just have to communicate a lot if if bitcoin was just plus 20% a year or actually bitcoin has been here's the irony peter yeah. right? since we actually got in uh to the bitcoin um investment bitcoin is the best performing asset in the world by far it's up 140 percent or more it's more than 10x nasdaq it's more than 6x or something s p it's 100x gold it's it's destroying everything you can look back and see this it's kind of clocking up about 40 to 50 percent a year steadily mm. so you wouldn't think that would be a problem, but it is It is emotionally torturous for investors that, uh, that aren't really um, extremely well-educated Bitcoiners to handle that volatility. So you have to continually explain it. We, have to, we explain it to the media. We have to explain it uh, and, and talk to public investors. We have to we have to always you know, deal with the Twitter trolls, right? People that that want to come up with some negative, cynical interpretation in order to drive engagement. Well, they want you to fail. They want it to have been wrong. There were people who want that. Yeah, it seems it, it, we have that. Yeah, yeah, we have that. But the thing is, it yeah, you know, another cycle. You know, you can be very right, and it's a whole different ball game for you then um but i think even even yourself when bitcoin started at about 15 16000 it must have been like fuck we were here now we're here yeah writing it from 66000 to 15000 is is a little painful especially levered especially with the silvergate loan yeah. i mean look <laughs> with, uh, we're on the same ride here there's just a lot more zeros on that but like but i'm really curious about that silvergate loan cuz um can you explain like how that deal was structured when it took place and how you actually ended up sort of closing it? Because I don't understand how that worked with them having to basically close down the bank. Yeah, well, we, we went entered into the loan before Terra Luna melted down. Mm -hmm. So 
So if you recall what the state of Bitcoin was in the crypto economy before Terra Luna, before Three Arrows, before every single bankruptcy. Life was good. I mean, <laughs> generally, you know, it was an optimistic halfway to the moon. Yeah. And everybody was, everybody was in massive investment mode. And I guess crypto VC was all time high and Signature and Silvergate had massive expansion plans, et cetera. And, you know, and I, I had like 10 companies offering me loans against Bitcoin and we had, you know, quite a lot. I don't know. I guess, I guess we had something like $4 billion of uncollateralized, uh, of just free collateral. So $4 billion of assets. So at that point, we were borrowing $200 million with $4 billion. So it's like a loan to value 5%. Yeah. So, so it's, it seemed fairly reasonable at that time. I think Bitcoin was in the mid-40s or in that range, 45, 50. Yeah. And then, um, and then what just happened was a succession of meltdowns, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and they started with Terra Luna, and then it was like massive deleveraging, and it turned out that everybody was basically cross trading with everybody, right? I mean, Alameda and Three Arrows and Genesis and FTX, and the entire thing just started to collapse. But it didn't come all at once, right? It came in about five succession yeah. plateaus. So five brutal beatdowns. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, and when we got to um. When we got to New Year's Eve of this year, right? That's you know fees on the base chain were sometimes one, two VSAT. Yeah. You know they were like there were there were blocks with three hundred dollar transaction fees in the entire block, right? And um, I think Bitcoin was like sixteen thousand five hundred around New Year's Eve. So at that point. Um, all, all of the wildcat crypto banks had all been wiped out, right? But they, you know, they were just all playing fast and loose, right? T taking hundreds of millions of dollars of your, you know, depositors' money and then loaning it to another hedge fund that would then put it into, you know, Anchor Protocol with UST or something, and like they were, there were like seven layers of risk rehypothecation there, and so they got wiped out. But, uh, you know, Signature and Silvergate were still around and, and we didn't really have the banking crisis outside the, you know, the crypto ecosystem, you know, but so, and by the way, that, that entire thing, right, that was catalyzed by the Fed, right? The Fed mm. took interest rates from zero basis points to 500 basis points in 12 months. So that's the steepest incline in the risk-free overnight rate that we've seen in our lifetimes. So they kind of crushed a bunch of stuff. And the first, the crypto ecosystem smashed first. With, uh, with Silvergate, what happened really was, just like with all the other fractional reserve banks, they're sitting on long-dated treasuries or long-dated or mid-dated fixed income instruments. And anything that you bought, any bond, fixed income bond, you bought with a duration of seven to 30 years when short-term rates were zero. All of those things are yielding one and a half, two, two and a half, three percent interest. So, so they looked better than nothing. But when overnight rates are five hundred basis points, risk-free, and you're sitting stuck with credit risk and you're stuck with interest rate risk for ten, fifteen years, they all trade down. I think the the entire bond portfolio, the bond index, B O N D, traded down eighteen percent 
from August of 2020 uh, to like last week. So all the bonds traded down. And so if you look at the, the bonds for the banks, they're all trading down 10, 15 percent. So they're all technically insolvent because if you're a fractional reserve with a 10 to 1 ratio mm-hmm. and your bonds trade down 10 percent, right? You've wiped, you've wiped out everything. So that, that's, that's an oops courtesy of central banking regulators, right? Like what, you know, how, how is that not going to happen? Um, so Silvergate, I think, you know, suffered from two, two unfortunate incidences or two situations. One, they had a lot of money invested in, in mid-dated uh, fixed income instruments that traded down. That's the first, but that didn't kill them. I think what killed them is, is their credit line uh, with, with, uh, with the Federal Home Loan Association was, was not renewed. <laughs> so, so they got a margin call from the government. And I, I think, you know, the, the crypto friendly banks have not been treated as generously <laughs> as other diversified plain vanilla banks, right? So we saw with Signature the, as a similar situation. So having said all that, I think Silvergate was really well-run bank, is a well-run yeah. bank. And the fact that they didn't actually default, they didn't go insolvent, they weren't put in a receivership and they didn't, uh, they didn't lose their depositors' money, right? And so every, you know, all these other banks, they all actually had to be bailed out Silvergate didn't get a bailout. The problem with Silvergate is they just didn't have the capital, so they had to wind down the business. I like Alan as well. I think Alan's a great guy. Alan stand up. Yeah, he's he's done an extraordinary job. Yeah, like he he's actually I I think if you're looking for a role model like for how to be a banker, he he is a role model. Have you met? Uh, him? Yeah, he's great. I really yeah, like I've been I, down to there in San Diego a couple of times. It just Top guy. Yeah, so I I feel badly about that, but they needed to basically sell off all their assets, and they needed to do it in a hurry. So we had a three year loan. So our loan was not due until until I guess March of 2025. So we would prefer not to pay it off. Obviously, we would like to keep it because I expect that Bitcoin will be trading at. Yeah. double or triple by then so from our point of view paying it off early wasn't ideal like that's why it was a three-year loan but you know the the business decision i mean they were selling silvergate was selling their assets at a discount like basically liquidating them uh before they're due and taking a a haircut to do it so in this case the business decision was do we hold out and that might very well contribute to Silvergate being in receivership and not being able to wind down their business. So that's not really good for them, right? Mm-hmm. We could be recalcitrant, but then who's going to take over the bank? And then what's that situation going to be? Or do we try to pay it off early? And uh, so, I mean, the accommodation was we paid it off early, not ideal for us, but we got a 22% discount against the, the fixed loan. And the loan was... You know, the world turned upside down. The loan was so for plus 370 basis points or something. So that was a 3.75% loan a year ago. But then SOFR went to 500 basis points. So it went from being a 3% loan to being an 
percent interest rate in 12 months. So, huh. so the rest of our debt is one and a half percent interest. So this became the most expensive piece of debt we had, and it was actually one third of our interest payments a year. We're, you know, we've we've got a really nice situation, like one and a half percent interest on two point two billion dollars of debt. We're paying thirty million dollars a year of interest on everything else, but we were looking at paying fifteen million dollars or sixteen million dollars a year of interest just on this one stub. So from our point of view, we thought it's expensive debt. It's floating. Who knows where silver's going? It's it was it's also it didn't start out being a problem, but it was it was the least popular piece of debt we had. You remember the entire yeah. MicroStrategy <laughs> liquidation, yeah. you know, Twitter party where everyone was just gleefully, you know, having a liquidation. They're hoping that was it three K the number? Well, first they were like, we think they'll get liquidated at twenty thousand. Like, no, it's not less. And eventually, eventually I had to put out a tweet saying, look, I mean, when Bitcoin goes to 3,500, we've still got the Bitcoin. And yeah. if it goes below that, we'll figure out something else, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the Twitter people were just very unhappy that we weren't getting liquidated. At least the, the trolls. Yeah. The Twitter trolls. Yeah. Very well, they've unhappy. all got liquidated, so they weren't you. Yeah. <laughs> Is this not fair? They're like, the bull run can't start till Sailor gets liquidated. Yeah. So... It was. It turned out having that debt that was marked that was against collateral marked to market was politically, you know, a, a public relations liability for us. Right. And and uh, it was just one. If you're a public company, you know, it's just one complication we didn't need. Yep. So for us to basically pay off the loan, we kind of got a triple benefit. We, we got rid of a, a third of our interest payments a year and we blew away an obscenely expensive loan. We, you know, if, you, if you calculate the IRR on that, if you're basically buying out the loan at a 22% discount, you, you know, you're avoiding $50 million of principal payments and you're avoiding another $35 million of interest payments. So you're avoiding $85 million on $200 million. So, you, you know, it's, it's like a 30 percent IRR or something. Good trade. Yeah. So it's 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 a no-brainer yeah. that you would want to do that if you had that option. Uh, so it was uh we took out expensive debt. We kind of simplified the balance sheet. We we uh freed up we, we had a I mean nearly a billion dollars of Bitcoin posted as collateral against it at one point. So, so you're freeing up a billion dollars of collateral, pay, you know, paying off a loan, getting rid of the interest, and now you're simplifying the capital structure. And now the the next piece of debt coming due is December of 2025, and it's got it, it's convertible to equity. Okay. At like in a 390 strike or something like that. So so uh, a much less, uh, let's say sometimes in public companies, you don't want your trolls to be able to generate or spin a negative hypothetical. Yeah. Right. Like if they don't want to spook people, the short sellers, if they can come up with a scenario under rich, uh, under which things get scary, then they are incentivized to market that scenario. So by taking, uh, by paying this loan off, it was, it was a benefit to Silvergate because they're basically unwinding, you know, winding down the company, right? So they have to get the loan off their books. And it's a benefit to us because we clean up our balance sheet and it was economically, uh, you know, economically a 
a win for the shareholders. Amazing. Well, listen, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. We could have gone for hours and hours and hours more. Um, this is brilliant. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. It's a totally different interview. I didn't even look at this. I told you that. Yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom with my boy there. And uh, we're going to see you a few times this week anyway, aren't we? Looking forward to it. Thanks for yeah. having me, as always. As always. And, uh, and I, I I should say, for the record, I'm a big fan. I listen to a lot of your podcasts. You. and And... Like a lot of times I'll scoop through and I'll say, you know, which of the Peter McCormick interviews this week do I want to listen into? And uh, I, I got to say, it's exhausting for me to scroll through all your interviews <laughs> to try to figure out which ones to listen to. So I'm very impressed with your work ethic. Like you've created a lot, a lot of really high quality educational content. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of energy. So I don't know where you guys get it, but. Well, I think it's team. a great asset to the community. Thank you. Thank well, you. it's a big team. I mean, six of us work on it now. So, did you watch the film? Have you watched the mining film? It's that's, that's worth it's, a watch. It's on my tray. <laughs> things I'm working through that right now. And do you know what these are behind me? Tell me. You know, I bought a football team. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there are trophies this season. We won the double. I think I had. Maybe I'd heard that. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, we'll be pestering you again in a few months to talk to you again, but thank you and just keep doing your thing. Um, really, really love this. Oh, come on. How good was that? Honestly, I absolutely love this show. And, you know, we're thinking hard about this show in advance. We were thinking, Sailor does a lot of interviews, but he tends to talk about a lot of the same things. And we wanted something different. We wanted something unique. So we threw the curveball out there. We asked him to, you know, give a little bit of advice to Connor, my son, who's just quit uni and decided to enter the world of work. And he's here working on the podcast with us. And it was brilliant. So I really appreciate Michael for doing that. Also love the AI stuff. And I know a lot of people talking about AI at the moment. I think it's just fascinating. So it was great to get into that and hear his views on that. And then also listen to him talking about miners as a first line of defense. So yeah, love this show, but do want your feedback. Drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, hopefully I will see you here in Miami. I've got the Rail Bedford trophies with me. If you come to the bazaar, come to our stall. You can come and see them. Also, have a great week. Enjoy it. And I'll see you all soon. <laughs>